Welcome back to History Matters, the podcast about history, teaching history, and why it matters. courses with me and he liked history and he was a good student but he came to my office after class one day and he said that his family's financial situation was such that he was not going to be able to continue and we talked for a while and I said um, suggested that he might think about the service because um, you can get what amounts to the GI Bill to help with your education or to pay for it afterwards. And uh, indeed, that's what he did. I received this email um, a month ago. He says, um, I have served four years in the Marine Corps Infantry with two combat tours in Afghanistan. Uh, and a couple of months before discharge, I went immediately to the college campus on base for college classes. Ultimately, ultimately, I graduated from Kennesaw State and was able to use my GI Bill to pay uh, tuition at Emory Law School. He says, I'm now an attorney in Atlanta and thrilled with life. My fiance and I recently bought our first home in Cobb County. And I'm proud to say I've recently entered a race for the Georgia House District 43. I'm writing today uh, to once again thank you for your guidance. There are a few people who I think of when I hit the milestones, and without that office meeting, I would not be who I am today. I am forever grateful, Ben. So, of course, I was thrilled. This is like a... You know, this what is, a fantastic this is, letter. Yeah, this is my bonus. Yeah. Here, you know? So I sent this to everybody I could think of, all my history colleagues and administration, because I thought that it reflected well on what we do here uh, in the college. And So this is a great success story, and I'm looking forward to this interview. Now, we should say, before we play the interview, and Ben wanted to make sure that um, we reiterated this, that his uh, thoughts and opinions here are his alone. They're... Yes. They're just his. There's lots of other people who had different experiences and probably would answer our questions differently. And he didn't speak for anybody but uh, himself. And he wanted to stress that his his answers to our questions were, were his alone. So. Yes, he, uh, these are his memories and his memories alone. I've got a, a sort of a big general question. Uh, it's got some a few parts to it. Uh, to get us started, these these broader questions should take us to more detailed questions later. Yeah. But my first one is uh, dealing with memory. Um, do you remember what you expected of Afghanistan? Do you remember your training being sufficient or insufficient later as you reflected on it? 
Yeah, so in the Marine Corps, when, you, when, when you're when you ramping up for deployment, and I've heard lately that the, that the ramp up has kind of changed a little bit based on the threats that the Marine Corps foresees going into the future, but when you're ramping up for deployment, you tend to train for that specific deployment. And so for us, we were always ramping up for Afghanistan. All of our training was keyed to going to Afghanistan as opposed to jungle warfare or, or, or island warfare. All of our training was keyed towards uh, counterinsurgency. Uh, IEDs were a large part of our training. But then our big ultimate exercise and one of the exercises that every Marine Battalion has to pass in order to deploy, we called it CACS, which is Combined Arm Exercise that takes place out at Mojave Viper in the California desert outside 29 Palms. And at CACS, because the reason that that was the final exercise for Afghanistan is obviously the same terrain, the same weather. And at CACS, they have built cities that resemble Afghanistan cities or uh, Middle Eastern cities. They bring in paid actors to play uh, locals and speak in the language uh, of, of Dari or Pashtun or Arabic. Um, and then, um, you know, we also go through language courses. So while at CACS, we start learning some of the language of the locals and how to say hello, how much is this? You know, good day. You know, where is this person? Where is you know, you know, different phrases that could come in handy. Sure. And so, from those things, I would say that you kind of you kind of get into you kind of know what you're getting into as far as the general idea of the terrain and the people and the belief systems and the clothes that are there. But I mean, no, I mean, I don't think that anything can ever prepare you. I remember. Um, landing in Marja for the first time and we landed at night we were brought in by Ospreys which are those planes that can turn into helicopters we loaded up at, at a base into the helicopter and we landed and we had our full gear I mean suitcases full of gear I mean we were weighed down with probably 500 pounds of gear that we were tasked with bringing into the city and we touched down and it's, it's like landing on an alien planet, you know? So you have no idea what the ground is gonna feel like under your feet, what the sound of the helicopter is. We had a perimeter set up and they were already engaging the enemy. And so the sounds of real gunfire as opposed to the training gunfire that you're used to. And just, you know, the feel and the smell of the dirt and, and nothing's ever gonna prepare you for landing in Marja, Afghanistan or landing right. on a battlefront. You can You can, train on every beach in America, but nothing's gonna prepare you for Guadalcanal or, or D-Day landing, you know? So so in a lot of ways, we were prepared and we knew what we were gonna deal with going forward, but in other ways, I mean, there's nothing, there's no training that can get you there. I'm surprised, Shannon, are you uh, surprised to realize this is sort of a Hollywood set that these men are training at? I didn't realize that they would bring in people paid in to dress and to speak in yeah. that way. But I think your point is really important. You can never you can never really train in simulation mode. Simulation is never like real life. Right. And, but yeah, that's uh, really surprising. No, I mean, they, they it, it, it literally was a Hollywood production. They would bring in special effects artists from LA and Hollywood. And so one of, uh, one of our training operations was called the Kill House and you're patrolling. We didn't know which house it was, and we didn't even know that it was happening that day. We knew that it existed. And so we're patrolling through this fake neighborhood, this fake city, and all of a sudden there's pyrotechnics going off and explosions going off. One of the houses next door, you start hearing just blood-curdling screams coming from inside of the house. And so you rush into the house, you provide it, you know, you set up a perimeter, you know, you get you, you task people out with different things. You rush into this house, and there are actual Marines and, and other military members who have been have had invitations from the war that are in there dressed as Marines with missing legs, the full gore, blood everywhere. Um, you know, and as realistic as possible. I had a female Marine. I don't know if she was actually a Marine, but she was dressed as a Marine, and I was tasked with you know 
putting the tourniquet on her and making sure that she was taken care of. And while I was doing this, she was punching me in the helmet. You know, she was going full force, like making sure that we knew in that situation, you got to be ready to deal with everything. I mean, it was a very intense, a very intense um, operation. So it literally is a Hollywood operation at, 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 at times, a Hollywood production. By chance, do you know... I mean, obviously, the U.S. government is funding this, but are they actually contracting with Hollywood directors or I don't film? Know. You don't know. That'd be yeah, fascinating know. to think about because it sounds like they have some sort of could be like overlap. A, could be like a war department or something. Yeah, yeah. I don't, and I don't know where the the, the locals come from. I know that they uh, are volunteer, not volunteers, but I know that they're recruited to come in and play the parts, and they're trained up on how to play the parts and. Um, and, and when you know when you're patrolling through the city, they act like they're back in the Middle East, and I don't know. I mean, probably some of half of them are probably American-born, uh -huh. right? But uh -huh. but they you know they speak the language. They they don't break character at any point, you know. In the training situations, you have certain protocol as far as like by the way, these are actually actors, uh -huh. so when they're uh -huh. shooting at you, don't punch them in the face, you know. But <laughs> um, uh, but otherwise, they do a great job at. at you know, at, at relaying the information they need to relay and get the training out that we needed. Wow. You know, that triggers a bunch of questions. Um, one, you keep talking about sort of uh, tactical training you received in the Marine Corps and how that's deployed in Afghanistan, you, perimeters and so forth. Yeah. Did you find the tactical training in the Marine Corps, did it fit the challenge, the military challenge you found in, in Afghanistan? Again, yes and no. So a lot of it, yes but then parts of it, no. One notable thing that I'd say about that is that, so we deployed to Marja in about 2010, uh, late 2010. We came back to the United States after that deployment and all of our guys were seasoned at that point. Marja was hell for us. And we had a lot of experience with a lot of different things, whether it was IEDs, whether it was uh, uh, you know contact with the enemy, helping locals, whatever it might be. And we had a lieutenant come into our unit after Marja, and a lot of times officers will come out of officer candidate school thinking they know everything and saying, we're going to do things by the book because this is what I learned we do. And we had a lieutenant come in, Lieutenant Zock at the time, and he said to us, guys, y'all just got back from Marja. I'm your officer in charge of you. I'm going to tell y'all how to train, but y'all know better than I do. If I'm ever training you in a way that is not realistic, you say, sir, this isn't how it's done. And we'll reevaluate. And not a lot of officers will say that. A lot of officers think that they know best based on officer candidate school. But, but Lieutenant Zock really like went above and beyond to make sure that we were giving him the input needed. So as far as tactics go, setting up a parameter, uh, close quarters combat, CQB, close quarters battle, um, training is accurate, you know, clearing a room, um, but then other things like locating an IED, you know, there's, there's, we do a lot of training on how to locate an IED and look for trash on the side of the road and look for this, and I can tell you that IEDs were stepped on regularly, IEDs hit our tr trucks regularly. And it wasn't about how much training you did. They were going to be there. And, and, and for a lot of them, there was no spotting it. Every once in a while, you know, we had electronic systems that were able to detect signals. And we had a mine roller on the front of vehicles that was able to detonate bombs before we hit them. And we did spot a lot. We had uh, EOD, uh, Explosive Ordnance Disposal guys, out there all the time. But a lot were stepped on. And so training in America to find IEDs that were put there by... You know, people who are experts on IEDs is different than no shit. There's a bomb in the sand. Right so uh, these sorry IED, for cussing. I don't know. That's fine. That's fine. <laughs> IEDs is uh, what improvised explosive device. Right. Now, are these set off through pressure by rolling over them or stepping on them, or or a percentage of them set off with electronics with a Both. cell phone? Both. So there there's a lot of pressure ones, and then there was also a lot of cell phone detonation. Um, devices. We have we carried a, a system. It's it's I don't remember how many pounds, but it's it's a heavy system that we carried on our back with a large antenna that stuck up that was supposed to block cell phone signals from coming into the area. So if you're in a patrol, 
this thing sends out a blast that stops all cell phone signals from coming to the area. None of us know if it actually worked. Bombs went off in the vicinity of those. Um, but it's also possible that it stopped bombs that we never found. Mm -hmm. So, so, uh, so both. It was both pressure and, and activated. Was that the most feared weapon, the IEDs? I'm going to be honest with you. I don't know if there was a feared weapon of the Taliban. Really? Well, I don't. I don't know that. I don't know that we had fear at any point. Um, we didn't really have time to fear. Was it the most threatening? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, they knew. They knew our patrol, typical patrol routes. If we left a base, uh, they knew that, and we started heading east. They knew that we were going to hit this road in ten minutes. If someone saw us leave, and they can make a phone call to their buddy set up along that road you cross that road and fire is coming down that road um and and so we were always kind of aware that the guns were coming that the gunshots were coming um you're all i mean you go on patrol and you're right you're waiting for the gunshots to land they were really bad shots i think that you know uh you know if you go to a gun range you're probably as good as a taliban sniper uh if you've never shot a gun before um so yeah, I mean the IEDs were the most threatening in the sense of they could go, they could be anywhere at any time. But uh, fear, I don't know that I'd say fear. Marines are pretty fearless in Afghanistan. You know, it's interesting because I've read a lot of uh, military history, American military history, uh, oral histories, accounts of soldiers in uh, in the Gulf Wars, in Afghanistan, in uh, Vietnam, yeah, uh, Civil War, and yeah. on and on. And I always, my antenna always goes up when I see a soldier describing what made him fearful or afraid. Yeah. Yeah. So that's one of the reasons I ask. I'm, your answer is interesting because you said you don't really have time to be fearful. I guess your training takes over. Yeah. And fear is a secondary. I mean, I can't speak for every Marine, obviously. And any answers, any, any questions that I answer today, I mean, sure. that's this is my experience. And, and Marines have a lot of different experiences over there. Me myself, and I don't. I don't know of anyone that ever expressed a fear in Afghanistan. Now, in other wars, for sh for sure, there was opportunity to be scared because the Taliban never got the chance to overrun us. They never uh, got the opportunity to ambush an entire unit and and take down an entire unit in one go. Uh, the the landscape didn't lend itself to those kinds of ambushes. That close ambush that they can really attack you. Um, because of the openness of the landscape? The openness of the landscape. Marshall was a farming community. Uh, it was built, I don't know when it was originally settled, but, but by and large, Marshall came about as a result of the 70s infrastructure that was done in Afghanistan by the United States. And so they rerouted the Helmand River, which travels through, Af through southern Afghanistan, going north to south. Uh, and, and along the Helmand River is Kandahar, and, mm -hmm. and they rerouted portions, you know, they walked off and dammed and built culverts, and, and, and we called them wadis, but yeah. ditches, yeah. And, and rerouted some of the water, and so now Marsh is this lush green landscape in the middle of, of the desert. desert. Um, but even though as a farming community i mean crops can only grow so high and there can only be so many trees along those wadis in between farms that generally there was an opportunity for the enemy to be 10 feet away and you not know it right. as opposed to in vietnam and in korea and in world war ii even where you could be literally next door over from from the enemy. well as an example i was reading there's a famous book about vietnam uh, what was the title everything we had it's an oral history. Yeah. And one soldier was talking about how he, and he was in the Marines, and they were in the jungle, and they were uh, they tried to stay close enough to each other in the jungle because he said there was a genuine fear of being lost. Yeah. That if you didn't see the guy in front of you, if he turned right and you kept going straight, that there was a genuine fear of being isolated in the jungle. Right. And the fact that you could not see the enemy. Right. So that is not something that was prevalent in Afghanistan, obviously. Not being able to see the enemy was you know, an issue. But again, I mean, in Marshall, we were getting shot at every day. Right. So it's not a matter of where are they? Like they're there. You got to find them. You know, and, and really you don't find them until they find you because they get to decide when they attack. Sure. Um, 
and, and a lot of times, you know, if you go out on a four-hour patrol, they know you're turning around at some point. By the time you turn around, you're looking forward to getting back to base and getting fed and Ambush. and getting your shoes off. And that's when they decide to attack is when yes. you're the most tired. And so we also knew that. We knew that, hey, they're going to wait until the end of this to attack us. And so, I mean, you're just on your guard all the time looking, looking everywhere and, and, and being ready for everything. Less about tactics, more about memory. Uh, thinking about now that the war is over, yep. the U.S. is um, is not involved in a military sense uh, anymore, at least officially. Um, what would you say after all of your experiences being there? What what do you remember the most? What how how do you remember? your time being there again this is this is me my personal experience but i i remember afghanistan fondly i remember afghanistan as a place where um times were very hard but my my brotherhood was the strongest um frankly life was easy for me um in afghanistan you know i tell people Afghanistan, in Afghanistan, all you have to do is wake up, go on patrol, try not to die, and go to sleep. <laughs> um, and a lot of people say, well, that's stressful. And I said, well, no, you try not to die every day. Yeah. yeah. You already do it as a civilian. You try yeah. not to die every day. Yeah. But you also have bills. You also have family issues. You also have health care issues. You also have, you know. Employment. Employment. You also have politics that are stressing you out. Um, so you have all these other stresses on top of just trying to stay alive that you don't realize how easy it is to try to just stay alive. Um, it's brutal. I mean, I mean, at times it was horrific and dark, but because of the brothers around you that no matter what you were going through, everyone, everyone in your life was going through the exact same thing. You were never on an island in Afghanistan. Um, and so, you know, I, I look back at it fondly. Marja was a beautiful city. It was, I mean, what do I remember the most? I remember the color of the, the fields. I remember the smell of, of the dirt. Um, uh, from cotton to tobacco to marijuana to the, the by, by the time we got there, the opium, the poppy uh, uh, fields had been eradicated. Um, but you know, I can remember the, the shake of a, an empty poppy uh, shell. Um, so it's it's the it's the sights and scenes that I remember most. You know, the watching locals at the market uh, cutting the head off a chicken. Um, you know, and, and seeing the women. You know, let's say a husband was going to the market and seeing the women stay away from the market and squat next to a wadi with their children while the husband went into the market and then. When the husband turned around and left, the women stood up and left with him. It was those sights and scenes that I remember the most, as well as, you know, inside the wire, I remember just the, the goofy crap that we did inside the <laughs> wire to, to have fun inside the wire. Did, did you, oh, sorry. Uh, did you, um, so <clears throat> talking about the, your brotherhood and your connection there, uh, did you have an opportunity to create relationships or have interactions with uh, Afghan people in Marja or were you fairly sort of disconnected because of the nature of your work or yeah so me personally no mm -hmm. I didn't build any personally didn't build any relationships with any locals from Marja I did build particularly in the second deployment so in the second deployment we were one city over from Marja. It was basically the same city. If we were in the United States, you'd call it the same city. Mm -hmm. A different neighborhood of the same city. 
Um, but we were in a, an area we called Treknawa, which I don't, I don't know if you look it up on Google Maps if it's going to be Treknawa. But the second deployment, we were more focused on training the ANA. It was a much less combat-heavy deployment. We were focused on training the Afghan National Army, the ANA. Uh, uh, and on the second deployment, I was much more connected with the Afghan Army. The first deployment, I wasn't as connected, but we did have units that were. So we had an entire unit within our unit um, that was tasked with training the local police force. And so they recruited a local police force from inside the community, trained them, uniformed them, taught them how to be. We had another unit that was tasked with building schools for, for the local children. Um, we had female Marines that were tasked with uh, helping educate female uh, Afghanis, uh, students. And so all of them had a much closer connection with the locals as well as the officers who were dealing with the elders of the communities, um, that, that they had to build a close connection there. But me at the time, no. Um, and then on the second deployment, when I say I, I had a close connection with the Afghan army, one of the things that is important for I think really everyone to understand is that while we were training Afghan police who were from that community, the Afghan National Army was largely not from Helmand province, um, which I don't know if we're going to get into the geographics of, of Afghanistan at all, and so I can cut it off there if we are, um, but, but the Afghan Army and the Afghan police are very different, very different organizations. The Af Afghan police is local, 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 and the Afghan army would have been more national or regional at least, or not even regional, uh -huh. not even regional. So Afghanistan is—you can almost cut Afghanistan in half, east to west, and the north half of Afghanistan largely speaks Dari or Farsi, and the southern half of Afghanistan largely speaks Pashtun. These are two completely separate civilizations that are in the same country. And so the, the northern half of Afghanistan is generally the half of Afghanistan that your Mujahideen fighters that fought against the Soviets come from, the, the more mountainous regions to the north. And also that's where Hamid, Kar, Hamid Karzai came from, these northern communities. And so is that the, those northern areas that America had the most interest in and they were more American friendly. The southern region, because of lack of resources in the south, uh, it's, it's just a desert, except for the few farms that are built. Uh, there wasn't as much attention paid, and so the South and the North are two totally different countries. And so during the negotiations, starting with Obama through, through Biden, a lot of discussion was, do we cut Afghanistan in half and do we give the South to the Taliban and keep the North a separate country? Um, and that's why. So the Afghan National Army is largely recruited from the North. Mm -hmm. And the Afghan National Army hated, that's a strong word, did not like the people in the South. There's a cultural it was, It's a cultural disconnect. divide, it's a language divide. Um, you know, I, I compare it to like the American Civil War where these are two different cultures that rely on different things, that have a different way of dealing with things. And, and there's, there's no little room of agreement. Um, and so the Afghan National Army would point at a little kid and say Taliban. They'd point at a woman and say Taliban. They had no problem. They, they didn't like them. They didn't want to be around them. And so it's not a surprise to see uh, uh, Afghanistan fall under the control of the ANA because the Afghan National Army didn't really see southern Afghanistan as part of its nation. They saw it as a separate country. You know, that brings up an interesting question about identity. Uh, as an American soldier in Afghanistan, uh, in amongst the people, Marine, Marine I'm sorry, Marine, um, dress, facial expressions, language, habits, could you identify, as you reflect back on it, could you identify a foe, friend, um, prob a potential problem, potential ally, just by dress, language, Body, body language, body movement—all uh, these things—is there a distinguishing characteristics? No, no, okay. no. I mean, I mean, the Taliban are professionals at it. That's what they've been trained to do, and they and a lot of them are from that area. You know, um, they recruit from within Marja, and they recruited from within Treknawa. 
um, you know, uh, for, for, as uh, the same as any war, you know, if you look at like Israeli-Palestinian wars that are going on, uh, you, you killed my dad. A bomb fell on my dad. So now I don't identify with you and I'm, I'm joining the Taliban. Um, and so they had the exact same mannerisms and exact same personalities. And even if you were looking for people who were hostile towards you, uh, the Marja, the Afghani people were, the, the ones that weren't Taliban were also hostile towards us at times. You know, if the government, U.S. government, which we all love the U.S. government, but if the U.S. government comes into your house and says, hey, like, we need to da-da-da-da-da, you're going to say, get the hell out of my house. Like, I support the U.S. government, I believe in USA, but get out of my house. And so even even locals that would otherwise be friendly were hostile towards us. So no, there was no identifying friend from foe in that way. What's the old Mao quote about the gorilla lives? The gorilla's like a fish in the sea. And I was reading uh, about Vietnam, and he said the mission was to dry up the sea so there was no place for the fish to, to dwell. Yeah. And but that had that that of course, analogy then you kill all the fish. Yeah, yeah. That analogy has nothing to do with Afghanistan, does it? Yeah, no. I mean, there's no sea to dry up. No, I I, th I think that I mean one of the big things that was that was drilled into us during training was this phrase hearts and minds. Yes. That we're not over there to fight. That we're over there to win hearts and minds. The focus isn't on killing. The focus is on winning hearts and minds and persuading the populace. And I don't know if, I mean, I'll leave it to the experts to decide, but I don't know if that's how you win a war. Because when you're uh, bringing war to a population, when you're saying, hey, we're here to defend you, and as a result, bombs are going to fall, and as a result, your cow might get shot, as a result, your daughter might step on a bomb one day, uh, it's pretty hard to win hearts and minds, even just with your presence. Your presence alone is disrupting their lives in serious and deadly ways. Yeah, this phrase, hearts and minds, has a long history. It goes back many, yeah. many wars. It goes back to the 19th century, even. People are, I mean, Reconstruction is about trying to win the hearts and minds of, of people in the South, primarily. Sure. Yeah. So, I'm not sure that I've seen a war where hearts and minds have been won, except maybe you could argue perhaps the Second World War because of the Marshall Plan, because of, of the economic, just the incredible, robust economic investment. Well, when you reflect on the fact that the defeated enemy in the Second World War, Germany and Japan, are now close allies of the United States, so that's that's the point you're making. Yeah. But think about, see, I, 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 I uh, identify hearts and minds with uh, Vietnam. Yeah. In fact, probably the most famous documentary on Vietnam is called Hearts and Minds. And the Vietnamese, of course, uh, never bought into it. And probably the Afghanis did not buy into it either. No. The presence of a large military force in your village, when you reflect back on this, can you see everyday resentment, just your sheer presence in their oh. country? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there was a conversation that I had, and I don't remember when or why why this conversation happened but you know every once in a while you'd take a break and you'd be able to like you know t get your interpreter over and communicate with a local and i asked a local one day through the interpreter i said uh are you happy that marines are here because we deployed to save them we deployed to defend them and i asked him are you happy that marines are here and he said no and i said but before you, you do you like the taliban he said no and I said, well, what's, like, we're here to fight the Taliban. We're good guys. And he said, no, you brought, you brought guns every day. You brought bullets every day. You brought bombs on the roadways. Um, and so for them, they would rather have existed with the Taliban because they knew when the Taliban were, were going to kill someone than have us where bombs, bombs could go off any day and, and bullets could go flying at any moment.
that's another question I wanted to ask you. It's a, it's a bit of a, I don't know, it's a difficult question because I don't want to, I'm not trying to ask you to speak for other people, but I'm curious for if you could try to imagine for a moment. We talked, I asked you earlier about how you remember, what do you remember about yeah. Afghanistan? And you said some interesting things about colors and sort of physical sort of things. So how would you imagine that Afghani people remember the war of U.S. involvement in Afghanistan? And I'm just trying to you know, recall bits and pieces from conversations that I have, but we were aliens to them, literal aliens from another planet to them. Dropping, um, dropping down in, in spacecraft upon their land. The technology that we had, I mean, if you take away the cell phones and motorcycles, Marja is, is a biblical city. There's, there's nothing in Marja that isn't that didn't exist in Jesus' time. Um, uh, you know, so our technology, our armor, our clothing, our not, ability to see at night, um, our ability to see far distances at night, the trucks that we brought in. Um, I mean, we were we were a, a high tech alien force that had landed in their country, um, and I mean I. I, I don't know. I don't know. If if looking back on what we did in Marsha, I I wouldn't be surprised if the citizens are more of Marsha are happy that Americans are out of the country. I wouldn't be surprised. Even though that means the Taliban are back. I wouldn't be surprised that, that they're happy that, that Americans are gone. Do you remember the political, I mean not the political, but rather the, uh, the religious life in Afghanistan? Is it pervasive? Are there differences among the Afghanis themselves? An adherence to, say, Sharia, or a more fundamentalist? That's Islam. something. Yeah, that's something that I never experienced. So, I mean, I read Kite Runner before I went to Marja, I believe, and so I was aware of the religion and the Sharia law that that had been in place in Afghanistan under the Taliban, and well, I mean, at least through that fictionalized narrative of, of that. Um, but we never. I mean. No, we never experienced Sharia law or the court systems there. I know that you know we had dealt with the elders to some degree, but I don't know that we were ever involved in uh, criminal justice in any way. Uh, as far as generally the religion, I mean, they're devoutly Muslim, and 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 um, even the Afghan I mean, the Afghan army, the Afghan police, the locals. I mean, that's one thing they all shared in common, you would hear the prayers come over the loudspeakers, um, you know, at, at morning and at sunset, and, and every Afghan, it didn't matter who they were or what they were doing, would would be available for that. So, um, as, far as, as far as religion goes, though, but their reliance upon their religious leaders as leaders of the community um, is was the most striking thing because you know in America we have TV and the internet and newspapers to provide us with what's going on in the world and, and, and how we should believe and what we should think um, in Afghanistan they had a, a loudspeaker that was set up on top of the mosque and that was the only mass media in the city of Marja so looking back you could say that the traditional authorities in Afghanistan remain. In what sense? Uh, during your deployment and now that we are finished with the country, those traditional authorities that the Afghan people respond to on a daily basis. Yeah, I would imagine. I mean, much. I don't know why they wouldn't. No, yeah. I was just thinking that the Afghanis have undergone, what, the Soviet invasion in the 80s and the American invasion in the 2000s. Uh, I'm guessing that their traditional sources of authority have survived both the Red Army and the American Marine Corps and Army. Yeah. Certainly the structure, if not the individuals, but the structure is what you're saying definitely in place. Yeah. So uh, how about, I have a question now moving slightly. I was interested in what you said earlier about um, how... Uh, there was a certain sort of easiness about being in Afghanistan. You didn't really have to worry about anything. Yeah. Um, so when you came back, 
Yeah. And you had to start worrying about stuff again. Yeah. What are your memories of that? Did you have like, um, you know, at the end of the the uh, Spanish-American War, the VFW gets set up, and after World War One, the American Legion gets set up, and there's these sort of support networks. Uh, are you a member of a, some sort of support network made up of soldiers, or is that lacking? Marines. Sorry, the Marines. Sorry. <laughs> I apologize. Yeah. Uh, do, do, the, do you have some sort of um, network like that, or are you relying more on your friends and family, or sort of on community issues? And, and what was it like for you to now have to now start worrying about all of these other things again? So you're, it's kind of a two-part question yeah. because again, yeah. like most of most of what I've talked about today has been the first deployment to Marsha. Uh-huh. And the second deployment to Trek Nawa is a whole other set of experiences. I mean, the same people, the same you know culture. A lot of my questions are the same, um, but as far as the threats over there and, and kind of the lifestyle, I mean, my deployment to Trek Nawa is highly stressful, um, uh, but for a totally different reasons, right? Um, uh, my second deployment to Trek Nawa, we by that point we had secured such a tr- foothold in the area that we had internet access every day that we were uh, we, we had a guy bringing a Xbox and so we were playing video games um, you know in Marja where we would go out on patrol with 12 Marines and four Afghan National Army soldiers in Trek Nawa we would go out on deployment or we would go out on a patrol with an entire squad of Afghan National Army soldiers and four Marines um, and so it's a very different experience and Frank, uh, for a lot of the guys that went to Marja, we didn't we didn't understand why we were in Trek Nala. Yeah. We were tired of it. We had dealt with the side effects of Trek of Marja and all the deaths and all the guys we, who lost legs. Um, I'm sure that a lot of our guys developed mental health issues as a result of Marja. And so we were all exhausted. Uh, you know, a lot of guys were exhausted, and we had new guys under us who were ready and motivated and ready to. They heard our war stories from Marge and they wanted to be a part of it, but we didn't anymore. Um, you know, of my unit, of the of my generation in, in my unit, I don't know of maybe two or three guys that re-enlisted after our four years was up. Everyone was done. We, I mean, we were absolutely mentally beat by Marja. Um, and so the deployment to Trek Nawa was highly stressful. It's stressful because when is this over? We're ready to be out of the Marine Corps. We have internet. So you do have girlfriend problems, family problems, bill problems, whatever's going on back home. You had all those stresses in Trek Nawa that you didn't have in Marja. And so for me, Trek Nawa was much more stressful experience than Marja was. So to get back to your question yeah. of... Coming home. Yeah, to get yeah. back to your question of coming home. Coming home from Marja, our, our unit had a very uh, unique situation in the sense where we came back from Marja and we almost immediately started ramping up for another deployment to, Mar- to Afghanistan. And that might have played a factor in how we felt about that second deployment. So the Marine Corps has a, a set of time, and I, I don't remember how long it is, maybe a year, in between deployments that you're supposed to wait. I think that we had about six months or seven months in between deployments that we uh, got back from Marsh and we were being sent back out to, to Trek Nala. And so uh, so for the time between Marsh and Trek Nala, I don't know, we were getting ready to go again. Uh-huh. You know, we were doing all the same stuff uh-huh. except now we'd been there and done it. It was less exciting to do the training for us. But yes, after leaving Trek Nala, and getting out of the Marine Corps, I think, is more your question. Yeah, yeah. Getting out of the Marine Corps, no. There's no, there's, there's not the systems. I think that us getting out of the Marine Corps is probably similar to Vietnam guys coming home from war. And the sense of you're faced with people and a population that's tired of talking about the war, that doesn't really care about your experience anymore. You've been there twice. Your family's dealt with it for four years. They don't really want to talk about it anymore. Um, and so if you don't maintain those close connections yourself, you're going to lose it. And so my squad from Trek Nall, we still talk every day. Um, uh, and I think that's good. Um, but a lot of guys go out and go out on their own, lose connection to people. And when you lose connection to people, especially the Marja guys, 
the number of guys I've had from Marja and Treknawa that have died since the war outnumbers the guys that died at the war. Wow. By far. So, this is interesting to me because, of course, the VFW I referred to, the Veterans of Foreign Wars and the American Legion, I understand that, so you made a connection to Vietnam, and my understanding is that the Veteran of Foreign Wars, the VFW, made a concerted effort to try to bring the Vietnam generation in. They did. But you have not been approached by the VFW? Have so they I'm a been member in? of the VFW. You are, okay. I'm a member of the VFW, and one of the, I think, the issues with the VFW is is that, like you said, after Vietnam, they made a, a big effort, so a lot of the guys that are members of VFWs are Vietnam vets. Yeah. But when you have a 21, 22-year-old getting out of the Marine Corps, they're not going down to the VFW for bingo night. Right. right. You know, that's not, that's not their stomping grounds. They want to go back and hang with their buddies, and there's nothing now keyed to them because, what, between Vietnam and, and Afghanistan, you had Desert Storm, you know? Mm-hmm. So there was, there's, not, there's not like a, a gener, like generations of VFW members. Right. You're either Vietnam or one of the few uh, War on Terror guys that have become a member. There's not a lot right. of young, youthful right. members of the VFW. Well, Vietnam veterans would be your grandfather's age. Right. So there is a uh, generational gaps here. That are significant. I find this interesting because basically you, in order to find people to to relate to and commemorate uh, the past and to think about the present, like the energy is on you, like it's all on you and your marine uh, uh, fellow marines. Fortunately, yes. Yeah, but fortunately, but I'm actually arguing in an unfortunate way. I I say fortunately because I've found since getting out that the Marine Corps is maybe like definitely the best branch as far as, you know, if I see a Marine on the other side of this room, I can go have a conversation with him and he'll buy me a beer. Um, I've talked to friends that were in the Army, that were in the Air Force, that were in the Navy that say that doesn't exist. If I go to apply for a job and the person's a Marine, I'm probably getting a job. Yeah. But Army doesn't have that kind of close camaraderie, and the Navy and the Air Force don't have that to that extent. And so for Marines, I say, fortunately, it's it's on Marines to make identifications because it's easier for Marines to do that. I totally understand that. That's what that. I mean by fortunate. I totally understand that. I was thinking a slightly different direction in that for your fellow Marines in Afghanistan, you guys have to supply the energy and the networking yes. and the connections to communicate, yeah. unlike like the Vietnam vet and even before that with the World War One generation, they had an in, they built an infrastructure to where they didn't have to supply the energy. The infrastructure was already there. You guys, it seems to me what you're describing, don't really have that same infrastructure. It's as if you need your own specific Afghan, uh, Iraq sort of membership, remembery institution, and that's not there. Is that, yeah. I'm sorry. I was just going to follow up with Shannon. Is that because the commemoration now is personal with you guys because the nation has chosen not to remember it? I, I don't know. I mean, y'all are y'all are the experts on stuff, but <laughs> but but I would say. I mean, my guess, if I'm strictly just guessing at this, is my guess is that it's social media and the internet. Yeah. Because you can have organizations and networks online. Uh, now that you couldn't and after following Vietnam and so you know guys you know there's a whole Marine Corps Facebook page of, of just my you know deployment or just my unit um, that guys can join but the problem is, is what you're getting at is that's not really a network you know if you don't log on or if you're not paying attention or even if you're not engaging the content you're not getting anything out of that, and you're not you're not finding that community. There. Particularly if you're having a difficult time and you're maybe isolated, it's not like the Facebook group, Facebook group can pull you out of that isolation. Exactly. Like if you're going down to the at least if you're like in the neighborhood of your VFW post or your American Legion post, and people see you're not maybe dealing with something very well, they can they can pull you aside and say, hey, you know, physically, yeah, physically, physically your physical aside. presence. 
Yeah. yeah. Physically pull you aside is the key because, you know, the Marine Corps groups that I'm a part of do keep an eye on each of other. Of course, obviously. I didn't mean to suggest no, 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 otherwise. Right. But. And so we do keep an eye on each other. Hey, like this, uh, you know, this Marine has been posting some messages lately that's concerning to us. Right. Is anyone nearby that can drive? And then, you know, someone says, I'm three hours away. I'm heading out there this weekend. You know what I mean? And a so, and so, exactly, exactly. But, but you're right. There's no one there that day when the crisis hits that can be there and say like, I'm right here at your side. And 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 that's what that's what's really lacking is when guys go back to their you know secluded parts of the country, and it takes five hours to get the the next yeah. closest marine to them. Ben, let me let me ask uh, one final question here. If reflecting back on your experience in Afghanistan, and since you've been back home, the American response yeah. to this adventure. If the country were to commemorate our time in Afghanistan or Iraq, or maybe both together, if we were to commemorate it with monuments or something can you imagine how we would do that i mean if you've been on the mall in washington you've seen the various monuments to yeah. the vietnam and world war ii and so on civil rights the holocaust how would we commemorate our time in afghanistan i don't i don't know but i can tell you i can tell you two things one the takeaways that i have from afghanistan and my frustrations with my deployments and with the afghan war because I say that I remember my time fondly, and I mean that in the sense of I lost a lot of guys. It was hell at times. Uh, I remember bullets landing at my feet. I remember, you know, wondering whether a bomb was going to go off under my feet. Um, but just that experience and the brotherhood and the closeness and the community and, and the lifestyle of being there was it just wasn't stressful like American life can be uh, I don't know I mean a a Afghanistan frustrates me and the American reaction to Afghanistan frustrates me as you guys know about you know American war fatigue and how Americans just get bored with war after a certain amount of time and I think that's what happened in Afghanistan I think it's frustrating to see Americans willing to go to war now um, without understanding the full cost. I mean, guys, we're going to be paying millions, if not billions, of dollars to Afghan and Iraq war veterans over the next 40, 50, 60 years for disability benefits um, uh, and, and, you know, the other benefits that veterans can access. I mean, forget the cost of the arms and the equipment. I mean, the war is expensive, first of all. And it's expensive not only in money, but it's expensive in lives. And that's the most frustrating thing to me is people not understanding that, that you might be done with the war, but the war is not done with the Marines and the Army soldiers and the corpsmen and the sailors and the Air Force guys who were there. That war is still raging for a lot of those guys. I mean, look, I mean, especially during the pandemic, especially during the pandemic, I was losing a guy Every two weeks, every three weeks, someone else would commit suicide for mental health problems. And so, what can we do to commemorate? I don't know. Stop, stop flying a flag on your on your on your on your wall, calling yourself an American patriot, and ignoring the mental health crisis that veterans are facing. Um, uh, uh, stop celebrating Memorial Day as a, as a day to barbecue instead of a day to remember the losses of war. And the cost of war, and the, and the ongoing cost of war. Um, I mean, uh, Americans have a certain way of viewing the war, and of getting into wars, and of getting out of wars, and it's frustrating for the veterans that lived those wars. Uh, maybe with time, like I'll get over it. Maybe with time, I'll look back and say, "Hey, we need a memorial to this." But I think the guys that were in Afghanistan don't want a memorial. They want 
people to learn. You know, they want an education system that teaches you about about what we went through. So there's an argument about this. One way to remember is through monuments. But another argument that I think historians are beginning to really think about is like, particularly when veterans are still alive, monuments might be nice after maybe a couple decades have passed on, but while people are still alive, there's a kind of memory in action, in doing some sort of service. And here the service might be like actually getting the VA to, to yeah. open up the doors to as many people who are suffering from yeah. burn pit victims or what have you or, or psychological um, uh, trauma that's been experienced to try to help that. Yeah. that, that you, don't need a mon- you don't need to have a statue for that. You can actually use the government or use the institutions available as to, to build a monument of service. Yes. Yeah, that's, I think that's, yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, during the, during the last State of the Union, Biden brought up the burn pit legislation at the VA and, and trying to make sure that burn pits are, are basically, with, when you're dealing with VA disability, certain things are automatic. If you say, I was here, then you automatically qualify for a certain disability benefit. And so he brought up the burn pits, and, and those were real, and, and I pray to God that I wasn't, my health wasn't negatively affected long term as a result of that. But it's those kinds of things. It's being aware of what the VA is and what the VA does and, and, and making sure that we're getting those benefits and the resources to those veterans is, I think, the best way that we can remember Afghanistan and Iraq. Ben, thanks. This has been fantastic. Thanks yeah, for coming so. on and uh, really enjoyed uh, the conversation. Yeah, yeah, it's a great conversation. It wouldn't surprise me if we did a part two of this at some point. Yeah, I mean, we definitely could. I mean, I got a lot more to say. And again, I mean, I, I, I feel it's really important to get it in there that like that's this is all my experience and my knowledge of of what i experienced and a lot of veterans i mean like i said we had guys commit suicide still committing suicide as a result of what they experienced and they would not say that they remember the war fondly Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. they remember the war as something totally different than how i remembered it and so so it's it's important to like i i don't speak on behalf of marines and and or you know even anyone that deployed so i just want to make sure that that's clear yeah, this is yeah. A, a sort of your sort of thoughts, yeah. and there's many, many other memories yeah. out there that we should consider. Yeah, and there's there there is there is a guy that I served with um, in Marja who has his own podcast, and it's Coffee with Julian, and he interviews different different veterans and just discusses their lives Excellent. and what their experiences were. So, Coffee with Julian, we'll have Coffee to check that out. Yeah. All right, thanks, Ben. Thank you. pretty interesting interview I thought Steve I was really struck throughout our conversation with him how he remembered Afghanistan particularly like how his two tours were so different the first one was quote-unquote easier for him than the second one I was really struck as well when I asked him you know what do you remember what do you associate with Afghanistan and and he immediately described the the physical environment, the landscape, how beautiful it was. And, and um, of course, memory has to be geolocated. Even in our minds, we have a place associated with memory. And so I was really f- sort of fascinated by that. And then, of course, what also really struck me was this difficult question, you know, what did he maybe, th- how did he think that Afghani people remembered uh the war or America's presence there. And uh, that was a really, really interesting uh, answer and an interesting conversation. Yeah, I was struck too by his comment that after that first tour that uh, we should have declared victory and gone home. Uh, That that was uh, very striking to me. Uh, I was struck also by his comments about the absence of fear. when you read memoirs and these recollections of men who have served, there's inevitably points where they they describe uh, this overwhelming sense of fear. Um, And he said that his training and the the nature of the missions uh, sort of um, uh, 
were without fear. I don't know if it's because of uh, the training made you prepared for what you were going to face, or uh, you knew the, the pattern of the enemy. So it was more of a professional endeavor, a job, as opposed to something uh, that was uh, that created a lot of fear. So I, I was struck by that. And I was struck by his, uh, his, his comments about commemoration that, uh, you remember we at the end discussed uh, how best to commemorate Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. he, uh, I was struck by the compassion that he has for his fellow soldiers for taking care of them. Yeah, not so much monuments, but like an act of, mm -hmm. an act of mo a monument of action, if you will, a, yeah. a sort of commemoration by like looking after and doing things rather than just building something out of marble for us to look at. In fact, I think we have enough um, enough material here that we should maybe try uh, a second interview with Ben. I think there's an, I think there's enough there that we can go back and, and pull a lot more memories from him. Yeah, I think we should do that. We'll see if he's interested and maybe get him back on. That All was right. great. All right, Thanks. take care. Thanks for listening to History Matters, the podcast about history, teaching history, and why it matters.